I had completely forgotten that last year, oh, sick, that I didn't even make it here. I'd just gotten out of the hospital and praise the Lord. Jonathan came, um, came through and, and shared with you. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about experiencing the cross from Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 35. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you, Lord. Thanks for grace. Thanks for mercy. Thanks for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in a tradition where Good Friday was called exactly that, Good Friday. And I came across a, uh, a little vignette, the cartoon by, uh, called BC, and some of you are familiar with it. And... Um, the author, Hart, he, he basically expresses a lot of our sentiment. Maybe it was your sentiment too growing up. He, he, he says, I hate the term Good Friday. And the guy behind him says, why? And he says, my Lord was hanged on a tree that day. And the guy behind him says, if you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? And he said, good. And he goes, have a nice day. <laughs> we can with confidence retain the name. Good Friday. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33, it says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, literally gawking. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. One-third of the New Testament is devoted to the final week of the life of Jesus. In the final days of his life, the scriptures record that the disciples prepared for Passover. The events in the upper room took place. The route to Gethsemane, the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, the prayer in Gethsemane, the final pre-Calvary miracle which takes place in the garden where... Peter cuts off the ear of the high servant Malchus and Jesus pops it back on. And on Friday, there's a series of unfair trials and a painful crucifixion. The cross has been the subject of millions of meditations and many more million songs when James Montgomery Boyce was asked the meaning of the cross, he said, quote, The cross means this, Jesus taking our place to satisfy the demands of God's justice and turning aside God's wrath, unquote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, quote, The cross is Christ's, is God's truth about us. And therefore, it's the one thing which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, 
We're no longer afraid of the truth, unquote. And what is that truth that he's making reference to? It is the truth that something has gone horribly and terribly wrong in our lives. That we're sinners in need of a savior. Yeah, you can say amen to that. I'm okay with that. How many of you, by the way, are thrilled that your sin's been forgiven? Yeah, yes. And for those of you who didn't raise your hand, the whole rest of this message is just for you. People often ask, who killed Jesus? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Romans? Horatius Bonner seems convinced that he was the guilty party. He wrote, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery of all that shouting multitude. I feel that I am one. And in the den of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. It was sufficient to condemn Jesus. In Luke's gospel, chapter 23, the scene moves from a series of trials where Jesus offers no defense in verses 1 through 25. His condemnation where Jesus asks for no sympathy in verses 26 through 32. His painful and humiliating execution where he manifests no resentment in verses 33 through 49. In the place of death where he suffers no dishonor in verses 50 through 56. Chapter 23 outlines the events preceding the crucifixion. The events during the crucifixion. The scene moves from the story of Cyrene who's who's forced to carry Jesus' cross in verses 26 through 32. A group of women who cry out, our grief-stricken Savior, the criminals alongside the cross in verses 26 through 32. And then his cries from the cross in verse 34, in verse 43, in verse 46. Those calls from the cross provide a window into the heart of Jesus and into the heart of God. These are what I call stained glass windows. They are bright and they are beautiful and they are filled with light and color. Real stained glass is often fragile, but the calls from the cross have endured the hammer blows and the iron nails that placed the Savior on the cross. And so the sight of Jesus on the cross brought a measure of perverse satisfaction from his enemies, but from his family and friends, from the people who loved him, for those who were both open in their love and secret in their love, 
there was this descending envelope of despair and dark depression that gripped their hearts. The final verses of this chapter isolate four reactions to the death of Jesus. Jesus speaks seven words of love from the cross. The first word of love is found here in the one that I just read. In verse 34 where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These seven words are seven windows into the character of Christ and they provide lessons. Three of these seven sayings are included in Luke's gospel. The conversations may have been heard in part or in whole by those who gathered around the cross that day. At the end of the chapter, we see a seasoned soldier. We see the public at large. We see a group of women. We see a religious leader. One saying is given and repeated by Matthew and Mark. Three are given by Luke. Three more are given by John. All seven of the sayings fall into two groups. The first three sayings are in one group. The last four are in another group. Three words were spoken to God the Father. Four were spoken to those who had gathered around the cross of Calvary. Briefly, the first window and the first word is found in what we just read. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second window is found in verse 43 of chapter 23. Today you will be with me in paradise. The third window is found in John 19, 26 and 27, where Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. And to the apostle who's watching, behold your mother. The fourth window is found in Matthew 27, 46, where Jesus says, Eli, Eli. Lama Sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he quotes Psalm 22. The fifth window is found in John 19, 28. I thirst. The sixth window is found in John 19, 30. To tell us die. It is finished. The seventh window is found in Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Three of the seven sayings are prayers. The fourth and the seventh saying is addressed to God the Father. The last, the final words of Jesus are taken from the Old Testament. We have an insight into his source of comfort as he bows his head and dies. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As Jesus commits his spirit to God, he brings all believers near to God. As he commits himself to the Lord, we are placed in our Father's hands. So the first window allows us to see a love that forgives. The second window allows us to see a love that transforms. The third window allows us to see a love that provides the fourth window allows us to see a love that questions. The fifth window allows us to see a love that suffers. And the sixth window allows us to see a love that triumphs. The seventh window allows us to see a love that surrenders. 
And so we peer through a priceless window. We pause for a moment as we peek into that first window where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The Lord Jesus pleads forgiveness. Is this the forgiveness merely for the religious leaders or the falsely accused? Is this for the Roman governor who falsely condemned him or the Roman soldiers who cruelly beat him and spat upon him and crucified him? Was this forgiveness for the callous crowd that mocked him? Is this for the precious few who loved him? When I was preparing this message, I was thinking of a trooper in Utah who this last week was hit. It was on all the social medias. You see his body flying through the air. And he says the most remarkable thing, that he bears no ill will, no resentment, not even an ounce of bitterness or unforgiveness towards the person who hit him. He said, if I'm willing to forgive her, why in the world would you hold any grievance or animosity towards them how can we measure the infinite love and the mercy that this prayer generates William MacDonald writes and I quote who knows what a Niagara of divine wrath was averted by his prayer unquote he quotes G Campbell Morgan quote In the soul of Jesus, there was no resentment, no anger, no lurking desire for punishment upon the men maltreating him. Men have spoken in admiration of the mailed fist. What he's talking about is the chain mailed fist of the person who elects to go to war. He says, quote, when I hear Jesus thus pray, I know that the only place for the mailed fist is in hell, unquote. What he's basically saying is Jesus is in the business of forgiving people. Just like you. Just like me. Why would you hold on to hate? When Jesus invites you to let it go. Why would you hold on to anger. Or bitterness. Or resentment. Why would you hold on to sin. When Jesus invites you to let it go. And so now all of a sudden in this precious window. We find the basis whereby we are forgiven. But the foundation which gives us the privilege to extend forgiveness to anyone. And to everyone. You know it's interesting to me. The text says and the people stood looking on. The the crowd offers a lingering gaze, but when it says so in verse 35, the people stood looking on. We use a term in our modern culture and society called rubbernecking. Have you ever been in an accident or near an accident? All of a sudden there is just this pile up. There's something horrible and terrible that's gone wrong. And there's something perverse inside of us that wants to look at the other person's problem. There's something that forces us to stare. And the people are staring at him. 
What is it about this cosmic crash that makes people want to stop and stare? It says, but even the rulers sneered with them saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The word sneered or derided is a powerful picture in the original language. The word is ekmeterezo. It's found only here in Luke 16, 14. It literally in the original language means to turn up the nose. It's as if you turn up the nose and you walk on by. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. To the unbeliever, right at this very moment, all around this great world, as they gather together, as they see crucifixes all around them, to the unbeliever, they look on the cross and they see Jesus is in trouble because he's the one on the cross. But the believer knows different. The believer knows the truth. The believer understands that it is not Jesus who's in trouble. The believer understands it's me who's in trouble. You're the one who's in trouble. You're the one who has a deep difficulty that only Jesus can provide the solution to. We're the ones who have sinned. We're the ones who need to be saved from God's just judgment. Our sin has separated us from God. And so the cross holds out an offer of forgiveness. And for some, it's simply a religious symbol. But for the saved, the, the cross is the substance that provides forgiveness for personal sin and the love that conquers sin. And the victory is not going to be an easy one. Because it's painful and humiliating, as everyone knows, who's ever in their whole life ever attempted to forgive anyone, anything. I want you to think about that injury that you sustained, the betrayal, the hurt the pain, the injury, and your deep desire to forgive him or her, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, your family, your friends, whoever it might be, and all of a sudden something wells up inside of you and you're humiliated all over again because of the injury and the pain is still very, very real. I want to ask you a question. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, I want you to ask and answer the question, do you think this is a painless experience or a painful experience? What's the answer? Pretend you're Pentecostals and you can talk to me. It's painful. The people stare into the circumstances that he's facing. Do you think that if you're stripped naked on a cross, humiliated, 
Do you think that that's fairly humiliating? Do you think it's possible to be crucified publicly in a non-humiliating fashion? Yeah, I don't think so either. I want to point out at least two things to you. That on the cross of Calvary is the presence of pain. On the cross of Calvary is the presence of humiliation. And I want you to read the text again. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's tie those two concepts together just for a moment. Do you think his forgiveness is real? Is it a fake offer? Is it disingenuous? Is there anything that's happening in this text that would make you believe that Jesus is just kidding? No, I think it's very real forgiveness. Do you know what this means? That it's possible to hurt terribly. It's possible to be humiliated and still forgive. Let me put it another way. The presence of pain and the presence of humiliation doesn't mean the absence of forgiveness. And so now all of a sudden you begin to understand something. That forgiveness is a choice. It only takes one person to forgive, but it'll take two people to be reconciled. Throughout your life, you may have passed by Calvary's cross and said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much for dying on the cross. Thank you so much for forgiving me. And then you walk on by as if it never really happened until one day your sin overwhelms you. The conviction and the condemnation becomes overwhelming. And if you're going to receive any respite whatsoever, you're going to have to kneel at this cross and accept the forgiveness that Jesus extends to you. It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. The, co- the cross offers forgiveness Forgiveness doesn't mean the cancellation of all the consequences of wrongdoing. It does mean the refusal on God's part to let our guilty past affect his relationship with us. Spurgeon was right when he said, we are certain that there is forgiveness because there is a gospel and the very essence of the gospel lies in the proclamation of the pardon of sin. That is the gospel. So I repeat, aren't you glad that your sin has been forgiven? How has Christ forgiven us? In the presence of pain, in the open, humiliated and exposed, Jesus forgives our sin and then he changes our future. An unbelieving skeptic, Mark Twain, wrote, quote, Forgiveness is the fragrance the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it, unquote. Sin's weight crushed the Savior. And then the stained window fills with hues of scarlet and crimson and blood. 
We see the seasoned soldier in Luke 24, 23, 47. It says, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The centurion was a Roman in charge of the execution detail. So he serves as both executioner and guard. He is the person closest to Jesus as he experiences the ordeal of the cross. And clearly as the commander of the execution detail, he's no stranger to blood. He's no stranger to death. He is a person who has observed countless criminals die on Skull Hill because if you wound up at Calvary, you were the worst sort of person. Present company accepted, of course. Just teasing. You wind up at Calvary. I know it sounds self-serving. Would you hate me if I said, I'm so glad you're here. That you belong here. This is a place where sinners get forgiven. This is a, a place where people get reconciled to God. Usually if you wound up at Calvary, you were bitter and empty and hurt and cursing. What this guard normally heard were people crying in anguish and pain. But all of a sudden, Jesus is different. Instead of curses, Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness. Jesus is pronouncing the promise of a paradise. Jesus breaks out with a heartbreaking cry to his father. The centurion watches as Jesus dies. And then he sees the sign that's posted over the Galilean's head. This is the king of the Jews. Matthew's gospel records this added detail, quote, in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in top from the top to the bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, unquote. I want you to just imagine, just for a moment, what might have raced through the centurion's mind? Clearly, when he says out loud, this was a righteous man, almost certainly it also must mean he was innocent. He's an innocent man. What is an innocent man doing on a Roman cross. And there's the public at large. Look what it says in verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together at that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. Luke's lens fades from the face of the seasoned soldier and begins to pan out into the whole crowd who are there. The crowds are at the base of the hill. There's a busy street filled with the curious and the cautious. Who are these people? Were some of the members of the crowd that had heard the rabbi preach? Were they recipients of his healing? Were they lepers who were cleansed? Were they people whose sight was restored or hearing restored? 
Were they seekers who had been shown the way? Were they sinners who had been previously forgiven? When Jesus died, some tangible piece of hope died inside of their hearts. Luke records, quote, they beat their breasts and returned. When you look at the text, you should ask the question, where? Returned where? Where did they go? Apparently to wherever it was that they came from. They were weeping in unrestrained grief. And they leave. And then there's the group of women in verse 49. Look what it says. But all of his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from the Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The women who followed him, the mother of Jesus, watched him suffer as they, quote, stood at a distance, unquote. How far away was she? When she saw the soldiers tie her son to the abrasive timber, tied his hands and feet, drove the nails through his flesh onto the wood. Did she hear the chief priests? Did she hear the religious leaders? Did she listen to the curses and the abusive words? Did she remember Simon's cryptic prophecy, a sword? will pierce your soul. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, did she weep or gaze in stunned disbelief? And then there's a religious leader in verse 50 of chapter 23. In chapter 23 of verse 50, look what it says. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man, Luke's attention turns to Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. He's considered upright. He's considered a solid citizen. He's the kind of guy you want to vote for when it comes election time. Luke adds that he didn't consent to their plan. That he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. That he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He's the man who will courageously go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. He will take it down from the cross. He will wrap it in linen. He will take it to the tomb that was prepared for himself where no one had ever lain. And then the Bible says in verses 50 through 54 that this is the preparation day. It's the Sabbath. The Apostle John reveals the information that Nicodemus was also a council member. That he also will share the burden of burying the body of the rabbi. So, we're given an opportunity to reflect, to consider to meditate on what Jesus does to ransom our soul, to forgive our sin, to make it possible. Not only that you live forgiven, but that you can live a life of forgiveness. 
This extreme gift calls for an extreme commitment. It's the kind of commitment Isaac Watts writes about in his most beautiful song. When I survey the wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorn comprise so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. There's a reason why we gather, and then there's a reason why we commit. Because we see in the sacrifice of Jesus the one and only possibility that you can be forgiven, but that you can live a life of forgiveness. Let's pray. We're going to have Carolyn come back up and sing another song. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we peer through this window, Lord, I'm hoping and praying that, Lord, you would stir our hearts. That, Lord, once again, you would remind us and comfort us and convince us that the very reason that we are forgiven provides the basis whereby we can forgive even in the presence of pain, even in the presence of humiliation. Lord, we're completely convinced that it only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. That reconciliation can only take place when not only one person decides to forgive, but both people decide that their relationship and their fellowship is far more important than resentment and bitterness and hate or even injury. And so, Lord, again, we pray that you would awaken our hearts Lord, we pray that as we contemplate with appropriate sorrow, that the sorrow and the grief will give way to gratitude and joy as we anticipate Jesus coming back to life. In Jesus' name.